Welcome to Dialogues in Afro-Latinidad, a podcast dedicated to amplifying and elevating Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx histories, cultures, and communities. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Reed Vasquez. Join us for conversations with experts and artists to learn more about Afro-Latinidad. Venga. I'm delighted to welcome today's guest, Dr. Dalia Antonia Caraballo Muller. Dr. Caraballo Muller is Associate Professor of History at the University of Buffalo and is a bilingual, multicultural, multiracial researcher and educator. Her twin passions are the study of the African diaspora in Latin America and the Caribbean, which includes her book, Cuban Immigrants and Independence in the 19th Century Gulf World, and the study of transformative learning models in higher education. The through line that connects her historical work and her work in education is the concept of impossibility. She researches Black intellectuals in early 20th century Cuba who thought at the limits of the possible as they state claims to rights, dignity, and equality. In the classroom, Dr. Caraballo Muller applies this, this through the Impossible Project, a learning experience that invites her students to stretch their minds and think at the limits of the possible in order to dream up new futures for our ailing world and planet. While she is committed to opening minds and opportunities for all her students equally, supporting Black and Brown student success is core to her personal and professional mission. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dahlia. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm I'm honored and delighted to uh, join your your list of distinguished guests on this podcast. Well, trust me, the, the pleasure is all mine. Uh, so let's just jump right in. So you grew up in New York City, and now you're mm -hmm. a professor of history at the University of Buffalo. How did your early life shape your professional interests in Afro Latin American and Afro Latinx communities? Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, uh, let's see. I mean. My work, both my research and my pedagogical work, is very personal. Um, growing up multiracial and multicultural in New York City, uh, frankly, I remember fundamentally not fitting in. Um, my Black friends told me I wasn't Black enough. My white friends saw me as other or tried to claim me and erase my difference. And my white presenting or white identifying Latinx friends, frankly, could not understand why I didn't want to claim whiteness as a Latina. Um, that made no sense to them, right? If only I straightened my hair, I could totally pass, they insisted. Um, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they were, they were mostly offended by my decision not to try to pass. It was a really fascinating experience. But basically, if I could sum it up, people spent a lot of time telling me who I was and who I wasn't. And that's one of my most salient memories from growing up um, through middle school, high school, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so like on the one hand, this was like fundamentally destabilizing, kind of psychically destabilizing, but on the other hand, it was really empowering because I feel like I learned pretty early, even if painfully, right, how to exist in between um, and how to assert my right to be complex. And, and here I'm thinking sort of what comes to mind is, um, you know, Caribbean theorist Edward Glissant's uh, concept of opacity. I feel like I learned to assert my right to opacity. Um, and so... I think maybe maybe I was maybe I was early reading a little bit Glisa, a little bit of Glisa, maybe a little bit a little bit too early in my life <laughs> at that time, but I was really finding resonance there, sort of trying to sort it all out. Um, so I really feel like my you know my work in my work in my research as an historian and my uh, my pedagogical interests and projects as they're developing are really really rooted in um, in that experience of being in between and having to navigate that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it is, it, it's a really powerful space that you talk about uh, in terms of what it does, as you said, to your psyche and how, how mm-hmm. it helps you, the, the formation of your identity, of your inter, of your interrelationships uh, in that context. Um, they can be mm-hmm. uh, quite powerful. Yeah. Uh, and so I know you, that you're passionate about you know, studying the African diaspora in the Caribbean and Latin America, and then applying, as well as applying transformative learning models in higher ed. And just wanted to know, you could tell us a bit more about why you were drawn to these areas, kind of, I, I presume they expand mm-hmm. from what you were talking about in your early, yeah. early childhood, but, and also, you know, as it connects to the evolution of your research on Black intellectuals in Cuba, uh, the Impossible Project, just tell us all about it. Yeah, <laughs> okay, for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, so my early attraction to history, you know, was born, I think, as I sought to understand my past and my present in context, right? Like that, I remember that was, that was ninth grade. I had a really great history teacher, but I feel like the world opened up to me in terms of my, um, the sort of tools and skills and, and, uh, I was acquiring even that young to sort of think about the past and the present. I could immediately apply that to my context. So, um, and, and like my birth and chosen family ties connect me to a lot of places, right? Puerto Rico, Mexico, Cuba, Chile, Spain, even Switzerland, right? Mm-hmm. So like my lived reality is transnational, right? And thus my research has always revolved around people in motion or people out of place. Um, as I've sort of looked back on all of my projects, I've realized like these are the folks I'm interested in, you know? And I think it is a reflection of my own um, those those early childhood traumas and tortures (laughs) and trials and tribulations but also you know the family that surrounded me right I mean my family I was in New York City I had family all over the world but even the my entorno right in New York City was really you know trans like really radically transnational all the time um and so that to me was in some ways normal and so you know, also, I would say my research is always is is always justice focused, whether it's pedagogical or or my my historical research, um, and and that very much tracks with you know my concern around issues of of justice, racial and otherwise, growing up, right? Like that was something I found really early on, and has always been part of my my life and always a driving motivation. Um, <clears throat> And the way in which I approach my research deeply influences my teaching and education work. So I figure what might be good is for me to talk about just both and, and how they're connected. Um, so more specifically, my research uh, took me first to Cuba and Mexico. That was started back in 2000. It's been a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and through that first book project, right, I traced 19th century Cuban revolutionary emigres in Mexico during the 1890s. Um, that's the book you referenced, Cuban emigres and independence in the 19th century Gulf world. And the project matters to me because I was able to reframe both Mexican and Cuban history by centering these transient Cuban border crossers Mm -hmm. and by observing how they changed in their new environment and how that environment changed in response to their presence. And so this led me to articulate this idea of the Gulf world that's in the title, um, which is a notion inspired by several colleagues in Mexico who talk about the region as the Golfo Caribe, which is a formulation I've always really liked. Um, and so what I was observing in my research could simply not be captured in a binary, you know, Cuba-Mexico framework. Um, rather, those Cuba-Mexico connections that I was seeing needed to be understood as evolving in a space that of this interconnected Gulf world, right? A world that was multidimensional. Absolutely. And so that book, Cuban Emigres, right, at core is about the forging of solidarities of resistance against despotic state power. 
right? But I look at both sides, at the conservative ideologies that bolstered state power and the resistance solidarities that challenged it. Mm-hmm. And so I, my greatest takeaway, or I would say offering, right, through that book is that the ways in which um, taking this transnational perspective lays bare how both power and resistance are configured transnationally, right, and need to be studied that way. I think that's something that a lot of us in the field recognize now, but mm-hmm. it felt kind of new and fresh in relation, especially to Mexico and Cuba and this Gulf space when I was writing the, the book a ways uh, a, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you mentioned the second project. So my archival explorations in Cuba all of, over all those years yielded material actually for my next two book projects. And the one I'm currently working on considers African, what I'm calling African world-making practices in 20th century, early 20th century Cuba. And so both like and unlike the multiracial exiles and refugees that I study in the first book, um, the African-born and African-identified people that are centered in my second book saw themselves as out of place in Cuba at the turn of the 20th century. And I'm interested in how they articulated their own non-belonging mm-hmm. and endeavored to carve out what I'm also calling, um, tentatively calling at this point, an Afro-future beyond what was intellectually and politically available or acceptable at the time in Cuba and elsewhere. So I argue that they env- that what they envisioned right, was impossible, but that not for that should it be ignored or marginalized, but rather I'm interested in understanding what made it possible for Africans in Cuba to articulate the impossible, right? Yeah, I love, I'm just going to say, I love this. I mean, I've heard heard about this from other uh, presentations you've made, and I've just been fascinated with that project. And again, (laughs) and just thinking, I mean, but kind of the broader project of people in the diaspora saying, you know what, I'm claiming this. This is who I yeah. am. This is what I'm doing. You don't have to yeah. like it, but you need to make yeah. some space. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> that is what these folks are doing. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so, so really, I mean, I, you know, this interest in the impossible then, and, and actually the evolution of the second book project really tracks with the evolution of my pedagogical project called the impossible project. And so it's not, of course, coincidental. Um, but in, in addition to then sort of book writing and research, this project that I'm evolving across the disciplines um, focused on justice and education is absolutely, you know, mission critical for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see my commitments to this project um, as my justice work through education, right? This is the field, the sector I'm in, and I've been thinking a lot about how I do this work. And I think, you know, all of us who are justice oriented think about how we do this work in our own classrooms with our own students. Um, and so I was right there with everybody else, but I started to think, you know, can I, can I do more, right? Can I do more? Can I do more both within my own discipline, across disciplines? Um, and so when I was uh, invited to serve as director of the Honors College at UB, which I did proudly as the first woman, first uh, person of color and first Latinx director, uh, for three years, I all of a sudden had a stage and a platform that bisected the entire university, right, in which I could take some of those, some of that classroom justice work and take it to the next level. And that really gave me the inspiration for building the project. So even now that I've stepped down from that position, I continue to evolve and expand that project really, really radically. Um, and it's come to take up a, a good part of my professional life, which which I'm finding is wonderful and I'm really excited about. Um, so, so just really briefly, the project draws direct inspiration from the work done at the limits of the possible by the historical actors I study and many others that I read about. And it channels this inspiration 
in the classroom through an intentional pedagogy that is fundamentally critical and decolonial and that invites students to, to experience not only thinking about justice, but doing justice work. And so we do this as constitutional to the pedagogy rather than additive, right? Mm -hmm. So rather than, you know, an experiential learning experience, right? Or extra credit, this work is, is fundamentally constitutional to the pedagogy and to every single impossible project that's run. Um, so another way I like to think about is the pedagogy is fundamentally prefigurative, right? In that we conjure and create or begin to create the world we want to live in, in the classroom and between the classroom and the community, right? As we go. Yes. Um, and so, right, yeah, right. And so right now I have, I have collaborations in computer science, between history and computer science, history and school of management. I've done collaborations with arts management. I've done collaborations with the School of Ed for a K through 12 project, right? So I'm finding just so many faculty in my institution that are really excited about not only the initiative and the pedagogy, but also about the kind of collaborative work, the faculty to faculty collaborative work across disciplines um, to really radicalize our teaching, right? There's like no shortage of folks who want to get on board, which is really exciting. And so can you give me an example of one of these collaborative projects so we can get a, a, a clearer picture of what, yeah, that, what that might look like? Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you uh, a couple of just because I can do them in, in sort of just one or two sentences. Um, we did a collaborative with arts management students. That was a so the collaboratives are relative uh, different lengths. They could be two, two weeks is the, the shortest I've done. A month could be three months, like a full semester or even full year project. So my projects span all of those timeframes. So I did one in arts management. The focus was on decolonizing arts institutions. Mm -hmm. um, so again, every project needs to be framed as borderline impossible, if not impossible. Okay. Um, so that, that's a pretty big one. And so we worked for two for, for um, about a month total for the project to uh, help students in arts management who are going into arts management, think through the very hard problem of how they were going to exist in these institutions, but still be able to do justice work, right? To further the project of decolonization. Mm -hmm. um, we did one with the School of Ed where we worked with uh, middle school children using digital gaming. So using Minecraft to um, build a utopian world, right? So to build a utopian future. Mm -hmm. And part of that work for these students, of course, the students have no, no shortage of, of um, brain power and creative imagination as they're 10. Mm -hmm. um, but still, there was a lot of really intentional work done bringing a, a group of kids into a space and saying, you know, we need you to visualize and then physically create in digital space a world that works for all of you, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the work was how to get them to understand the sort of give and take of that process and, and what was going to be present and absent in this fantasy world required them to reflect on their own lives and circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that was really powerful. In computing, we're doing one now, pedagogy is being delivered to 600 students and the focus is on making computing anti-racist. Wow. Um, yeah, no, and yeah. that one is, oh, it's it's really dynamic and it's about midway through its execution right now, um, showing some really, really promising um, outcomes. And it'll be really, really interesting to dive into that lot of data we're gonna have as we come through that project. Um, and then lastly, with the School of Management, we're working with global, um, global business students at the master's level who are taking on a world problem of their own choosing. And they're working across country lines, time zones, and in some cases, languages mm -hmm. to be able to visualize a solution to the problem that they propose. These are mostly um, drawn from the UN Sustainable Development Goals. 
as you know, framed as the big problem that, that we face in our world today. So those are those are some. They're all and they're all in some stage of process right now. Um, so it's all very exciting. Yeah, that is amazing. I'm yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing, learning more. I'll we'll have all the information, the links to the website on the Impossible Project mm-hmm. uh, on, yeah. on our site. And so thinking about all those pieces from the impossible identity p- political. <laughs> Um, um, pieces that you pull out from the historical elements and then looking, you know, bringing that, putting that through line to your work in the 21st century. How do you think this, this work helps contribute to our understanding of Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx communities? Thank you. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think fundamentally my work contributes um, or builds our understanding of Afro-Latin American Latinx communities because my work um, is about them and in some cases for them, right? So at a research level, um, you know, the work is about bringing forward Afro-Latin American Latinx stories and histories and stories that have been erased, suppressed, ignored, glossed over, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at the level of the education work, I think by resignifying the classroom, right? And what goes on inside the classroom with my colleagues across disciplines, I'm creating spaces for Afro-Latin American, Latinx students to be seen, heard, and to thrive. And I would say that generally for students of color and also students um, that are in some way non-normative or considered non-normative, right? Mm-hmm. So like since the projects always require students to carry their work out into the community, another element is that I always partner with community organizations, um, currently mostly that work with black and brown youth and families in Buffalo. Um, and many of those families are Afro-Latinx or Afro-descendant. So through those partnerships, I'm working to provide material and intellectual resources to community members in a way that's respectful and collaborative and is focused on supporting their community work. At the same time, my students learn valuable lessons through that process you know, of thinking critically about historical problems, developing creative solutions, um, and working in, cooperate, in respectful cooperation with community members and leaders, right? So I, I think at both levels, my research interests focus publications, mm-hmm. um, the concept of impossibility and the way it ties my intellectual interests and my pedagogical interests, and then the way in which I execute the work in the classroom, collaboratively with colleagues, with my students, and out with community members is all meant to do justice work in and for these communities. That right? is, and, yeah, that, yeah, no, so, no, no, I was just gonna say that is, Amazing, fantastic, because I think I think for a lot of us, especially those of us who are historians, we think about all the work we do about the past to try to yeah. let people in the present know about it. But sometimes and sometimes it doesn't translate. I mean, we, we teach it, obviously, but sometimes it doesn't translate or connect to the community, the contemporary yeah. communities. And I love that your work is reaching, trying to is reaching out to all of those spaces. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think so. And I think like at a, at a fundamental level, what I was just going to end with was saying that, you know, being a woman of color in the classroom, you know, all the way through my experiences in K-12 and then college and then grad school and then now as a teacher of those students, right, you know, you know, at some fundamental level, I just got tired of seeing black and brown students drop my class, right? Like, yeah. I, you know, there's a kind of just, you know, you just can't refuse the work 
of mentoring and supporting these students. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you get up and you're a bit more senior colleague than mentoring and supporting your junior colleagues, right? Because you know what they went through. And so I think at a certain level, you know, that has very much inspired me to say, to set like an absolute, you know, hard line, right? Like I am not letting a black or brown student drop my class, just period. Like, it's just unacceptable. And what can I do about that? And so what that led me to do was to think, well, I need to reframe my entire pedagogy, Mm. right? Because my entire pedagogy, the way we often teach, right, is based on, you know, we teach to our best students and our students that may be struggling, you know, well, hey, maybe they make it, maybe they don't, right? I mean, there's some of us that are a little bit more generous and we'll say, I don't know, we're going to, we're going to uplift those students that are struggling, but that's always from a deficit perspective, right? We're always thinking, you know, I got to put in some extra work to compensate for the failures of K-12 because, and so this student isn't thriving. Well, that's a little bit of extra work I need to do, catch them up, right? And what I'm saying is, no, I think the whole pedagogy is wrong, right? Mm. And so that requires a really radical reconceptualization of the classroom. And so I'm drawing that inspiration from critical pedagogy, but also, you know, from my own field, right? From the luminaries of, of, this wonderful past we share, right? Folks like Lisa and others mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, contemporary theorists and so forth that, you know, I think we can, we can, we can draw a tighter connection between what it is we study um, and how we can theorize about what we study and our classrooms, right? So it's not just sharing the story with the student, right? right? But it's more, a more profound connection that, that we can draw if we really push ourselves is what I'm thinking or what I'm experiencing. Yeah. And I'm, and it makes me, th- I mean, my next question is about kind of the urgent issues. And it sounds like so much of this is the, the, your, your interest, your development of yeah. this project is very much about the urgency to, yeah. of the social justice work, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah. You tell me, you know, kind of as, as it relates to your work, um, what do you, what would you say are the most urgent issues for Afro-Latinx yeah. and afro communities today? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, on the real, like, aside from, you know, basic necessities, um, you know, the rights that we're struggling to get and, and, to, and to maintain, right? I think that it's, for me, it's the space to think and dream and build together, right? Mm. Like, I think we need our youth and our students to be able to engage in what Robin D.G. Kelly is called freedom dreaming, right? You know, when he urges us to uh, something that's always stuck in my in my mind, right? As he urges us in that book to, you know, quote, dream ourselves out of this dark place. Or he asks us, how are we going to dream ourselves out of this dark place? And I, that just haunts me, right? Because, you know, as you know, as you read his book, you understand that so many generations have done this before, you know, but he's right. making that call out to us. You know, and I think we need that space to dream collectively. Right. And we also need the space to then give contours to those dreams and the space to make those dreams reality. Right. In many, in many ways is to bring forth the Afro future. Right. Like a future in which all people are free because all interlocking forms of oppression, especially racism, you know, have been divested of power. Um, but like we're often so concerned with like credits and minimum standards and all of those other things that we need to be concerned with. And I'm thinking, you know, where is that space? You know, the person who called for that was Bell Hooks. Right. Um, when she talked about the classroom as a paradise um, and a space of possibility um, and learning as love and as joy and as passion, right? Like those are the things that I think um, even as faculty, sometimes it's hard for us to um, remain connected to. And so I actually think 
right now, as I look out at this world, <laughs> this country, right? <laughs> this is, this is, this feels urgent to me. Somebody else might not say that, might not agree, but this feels urgent to me. And right now as, as teachers and faculty and all people, you know, facilitating and holding learning spaces, I think we all have a role to play in that. Yeah, no, I mean, I really love that, that, that piece about the space and space can be, can mean so many different things in the way as, as a conduit to yeah. uh, putting forth this, these push, this push for social justice that, per, that will permeate. That's not just in this little corner, in this little sliver that it that no, it, it spreads out uh, very broadly yeah. and, and yeah. as broadly, as broadly applicable. Um, yeah. As we, as we kind of um, wrap up things here, I wanted to, to say, you know, ask, uh, in addition to your publications, your book that we mentioned, and then The Impossible Project, uh, as well as your personal and professional website, what other specific specific kinds of resources would you recommend to people interested in learning more about what you do in terms of, of uh, the African diaspora in Latin America, in terms of um, education? What, yeah. you know, what, what's been inspiring you? In this yeah, that's a great question. And I think I could, I could be here all day um, with so many recommendations. But I mean, I think right now, as you know, I'm taking, so I'm, I'm very much with, with the teaching work and my research work, it's very much a praxis, right? Like I'm on the ground practicing and also theorizing and reading at the same time, which is such a rich and very challenging way to work. Um, but so, you know, from, from reading, I'm really steeping myself a lot in, in Afrofuturism. Um, so Afrofuturist works, but also um, critical work on Afrofuturism, you know, Caribbean theory, critical race theory, and, and more. I'm, I'm just taking so much in. But, but some of the books that are um, sort of sitting with me, these are the books that are, you know, make it to my desk. They're not on my shelf you know, and that I'm going to keep picking up for a while, you know, there's some, I, I would, I would recommend reaching back and rereading um, and, and holding close texts like Franz Fanon's Black Skin, White Mass. And I mentioned Edward Glissant's work, um, specifically the book Poetics of Relation are two, um, two really, really important works for me right now. I'm also I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to stay in the ring here with Sylvia Winter. She's, she's, she's tough and absolutely brilliant. Um, and giving me a mental workout. And <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking her work through Catherine McKittrick's edited collection uh, called Sylvia Winter on Being Human as Praxis is just brilliant um, and a really good way into Sylvia Winter's thinking, which is, I think, just essential for like anybody alive today. I think she's brilliant. Um, but Frank B. Wilderson on Afro-Pessimism, Christina Sharp in the Wake, Zakia Mon Jackson Becoming Human, um, I've got others, Isaiah Lavender's Afrofuturism Rising, any of Ruha Benjamin's work, especially most recently I'm reading Captivating Technologies. You know, she's a formal scholar in race and technology. And so basically anything and in, in everything that meditates on racism um, as onto and epistemologically embedded, you know, because I feel like until we can sort of understand that at a profound level, we can't really move forward. Mm. Um, you know, so so the way race is embedded in our in our in the, the very concept of of the human, right, and of humanness, and um, so that's that's the sort of rabbit hole mm -hmm. I'm happily <laughs> I'm happily down in. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I, I was like, I'm, you know, typing yeah. furiously, taking yeah. some notes. I'm like, oh, I've got yeah. So many of these things are on my shelf or on my list yep. of things to read. Yep. I'm just trying to to find the space and the time yeah. to get to yes. it. You're right, you're right. That's why they're on the desk, you know, cause you could get, you just take those 10 minutes 
you know, you just have to have to find them, but you're right. We're all, we're all so busy. Well, I just want to thank you so much, Dahlia, for joining us today and sharing your work um, and your uh, passion and dedication uh, to this arena and Afro-Latinidad. And uh, we'll, and I look forward to uh, future conversations. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And thank you so much to your listeners. Um, yeah, this, is, this has been a wonderful experience. And I, I look forward to continuing to listen to the podcast and all the great guests that are on, your, on the docket for, for um, the next several months. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Dialogues and Afro-Latinidad, please subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend. For links to the resources mentioned in the interview, visit our website at michellereedvasquez.com forward slash podcast.